0: Hello and welcome to the Culture Vile Debate, where this month our panel is here to look at and even listen to cities, what they offer and what they deny, who they serve and who they hinder, how cities are and how we dream they'll be. And in the wall of Zoom this time, we have four souls busy rethinking and remaking the city. First off, we have scholar Leslie Kern, whose book Feminist City looks at what she calls the patriarchy in stone and glass and the processes that could make better cities for all their inhabitants hi leslie
1: Hello
0: Sven Anderson is an artist whose practice involves collaborative research and interactive design and he 's looked at new ways of integrating sound into the public realm Hi Sven hi Luke very nice to meet you you'd like to integrate some sound into this public realm there let 's do it very good. <laughs> Also with us this time is architect Norella Breen, who this spring is due to install a 24-carat golden pyramid on a riverside roof in Bachelor's Walk. Hi Norella. Hello. And rounding out the square or the oblong, actually, is curator Lar Joyce, who's been working with Dublin Port's roster of commissions in film, theatre, sound, and sculpture as part of the plan to create a whole new Dublin civic space. Hi Lar. Hi. So We're all sitting in our various rooms in our various locations. What city would you like to be sitting in tonight? And what is it about that city that they're getting right? Leslie?
2: I think if I could choose, I would love to be somewhere like Copenhagen right now. Um, it's always a city that I felt very comfortable and safe in and a city that I think gets a lot of things right in terms of how people move through the city. So there's excellent public transportation system, but you also see lots of people out riding their bikes and not just individuals, but whole families um, taking their kids, doing their shopping. And to me, this suggests that there's a real effort within the city to make um, care work, social reproduction possible in public space.
0: Okay, one ticket to Copenhagen. Sven.
1: Oh, I'm going to take the easy way out and just say I'm very happy here in Dublin. Um, I have to mm. be. I have to be honest. I've, I've really enjoyed and appreciated, um, you know, looking out and seeing the way people are using the city right now. Seeing, I mean, it's sad to see it so empty sometimes, but also I see really encouraging signs of um, new ways of navigating the city. So I'm very happy to be here. I have to say, Norella, um, how about you? Yeah,
3: I totally agree. I. I'm completely happy to be in Dublin and there's nowhere else I'd rather be at the moment. It's become a kind of new place in the last few months and that's kind of exciting. It's kind of shifted everything, um, our understanding of what is the public realm. It feels like a new place almost. Another vote for Dublin. Uh,
4: I I love Dublin, but I'm going to go for Rotterdam um, because it's the time of year. Just being in Rotterdam at Christmas and being there at Christmas, it's, it's a nice city to be in. But also, it's, it's very much a port city. You know that you are in Europe's biggest port. It's, it's
0: good to see the Dublin port man has port envy. That's, it's a good type of envy. OK, so that's perfection, um, but perhaps not the city in which we're currently living. Leslie, in your book, Feminist City, you offer a way to think about the way cities have come to be designed around particular users, but also about how they shape those users.
2: Absolutely. If
0: users is the right word for a city.
2: Sure, we could call them users, city dwellers, inhabitants. Yeah, one of the things that I'm trying to show or make apparent to people in Feminist City is that our built environments around us are not just these stages that we like act out social relations on. But that the built environment is also an active participant in shaping how we do things. And of course, I'm particularly interested in how it shapes gender norms and gender relations around work and the home and family and safety and care and all of those kinds of things. But in, in many ways, the city is also there shaping how we relate to each other across all sorts of differences.
0: I mean, tell us a little bit about that. This is not always a positive process.
2: No. Cities, like any built environment, reflect the power relations, the norms, the values and ideals of the society that built them. So if we're talking about a, a patriarchal, male-dominated society, a, a white-dominated colonial society, then those norms are going to be reflected in the buildings that we have, the the street Layouts, the naming the monuments uh, the spaces around us, and the ways in which we are um, taught and socialized to use those spaces
0: sven I, I mean, I suppose Leslie talks about in her book the way that a certain kind of economic order expresses itself visually in our cities, and I suppose one of the one of the antidotes to that is about letting artists
1: get involved with how a city expresses itself. Is that a useful approach I think absolutely um. The role and it's it's that's a complicated one to open up. I mean, the role of the artist in um, working in the public realm and in public art or in kind of more collaborative processes, uh, working with architects on bigger projects, it's, you know, there's a whole range of things that um, that we can look back on as, as good examples of practice and also as maybe bad examples of practice where artistic, you know, artistic work can be used as Sort of like a form to pacify some of the tensions, maybe that you know we're coming out of what Leslie was just talking about there. A lot of times, public a public artwork is required for a new situation, a new building, and it's used to sort of mitigate or to create some sort of social link that you know wasn't present in the built environment or in the project otherwise. Mm-hmm. So for me, at least in in the work I've been doing recently and also in my teaching with students, I've been really trying to encourage everybody to think of different forms. And that's why I've enjoyed working with sound so much, because it's such an ambiguous starting point for, you know, making interventions in the city. I, I always talk about it as sort of like a gateway drug to a lot of other things. You know, once you start thinking through sounds, you start to reinterpret the built environments and all of the relationships you have with buildings and other people. It's quite a quite a nice thing.
0: Several of us here have, are invested in the idea that uh, artistic practice can offer something to the city and kind of reorientate what it has to offer and how it interacts with its its uh, inhabitants. But maybe is that a kind of a very idealistic idea? Is that quite utopian in some ways?
3: Norella? Mm, yeah, I suppose, like, well, I'm a practising architect and um, a lecturer, so... In my practice and in teaching, we talk about making urban spaces, actually designing the built environment, you know. And what has become most striking in the last few months for me is that what we think is truly private actually isn't. And it's kind of been highlighted through capitalism. And there's so much of our city that we think is public that isn't actually and so it's kind of reshaped and redefined the last few months how I think as an architect and as a person, a person living in a city.
0: Lara, I mean, uh, Norella raises this idea about what's public and what's private. And I think in the Dublin Port Authority, that's a, or the Dublin Port Quarter, as it might become, that's always c- going to be an, an issue that like is very live for uh, negotiation.
4: Yeah, no, uh, you totally right. I mean, the, the port is designed by engineers to do one thing, which is to move imports and exports very, very efficiently around as quickly as possible. Um, and that its its main focus. So what we're trying to do is create uh, public space uh, and civic space within that. Um, so it is quite challenging. And to kind of follow up on Leslie's point, I mean, ports are, are kind of the ultimate uh, in capitalism, and, and the, the city in many ways has been built around the needs of the port, the key walls, the fact that the there's only so many bridges in Dublin, it's down to the fact that the port wanted key walls to access for shipping, while the city wanted to build bridges across a river that dominates the space. And the port, in many ways, won that battle right up into about the 1920s. Um, so that's why we have so, many, you know, so few bridges on the river, is because of this need for unloading ships, which is the kind of capitalist need. So the port, in many ways, has physically uh, affected the way the city looks today. Going into the future and how, how you know we're, we're going to work in these public spaces, um, it's trying to create um something that morella has kind of said, it's, it's trying to make people feel comfortable. So whatever we do, we want people to come there, but we don't. I think we've all had that experience where you go into a new space and it doesn't work for whatever reason does make you feel comfortable, or you don't get understand what the message is that's been kind of arranged by my role as a curator or maybe as an architect. So what you do is you want to create that space that is kind of very, very welcoming. And that's what we're proposing to do with our greenways, our cycle network, and then, as you said, our, our kind of quarters, or our cultural areas uh, interspersed with a very busy port.
1: I spent a lot of time out in the port recently because I was working on building up um, the pavilion for I'm work I'm co-curating the Venice Architectural Biennale this year. We had a a build space out there and i was always out there kind of you know with a bike at various phases when it was allowed in the last couple of months shooting past all of this like kind of crazy activity and it's the kind of you, you know there's this kind of a, this idea of accessing industrial heritage which which we haven't had a, i mean we talk about it a lot in dublin but i think that if we're making public spaces and kind of gestures that go out in that direction do you think it's possible to, to link people to, to some of that activity or is it all just about making things comfortable and like kind of falling back into the city?
4: When I talk about comfortable, I think it's as you're coming into the port area, um, if you go on Google Maps, you see where it is. We're very much divided from the city by a road called um, East Wall Road, which is a two lane, busy, messy road. I cycle it every day. It's quite a dangerous road. But you, you, um, are, you
0: are building a cycle path for yourself to get there. Yes, yeah, so we're building a cycle path in
4: Greenway beside it to kind of cut cut that down. But once you get into the, the, the more industrial heritage buildings, the idea is that eventually you, you'll have views from the, the tops of grain silos. So to, to answer your question, so you'll actually have that view that you've been having because you're down there. But from the top of buildings, you can actually see the whole whole port and how it, how it works. And... You know, it, we, in Ireland we don't treat industrial heritage very well. I, I think yeah, know, our we, own focus is it's, its probably alien to us, it's more associated with uh, United Kingdom, it's kind of an, an English history. And there's pockets of around Ireland, and we haven't really treated it very well because it's probably not perceived as ours; it's theirs. But I think at the same time, there's now so much, so little that left. I think there is an understanding that we need to kind of preserve what is there. The
0: the question of safety comes up there, which is actually very key to how people experience the city. And Leslie, one of the things that you, your research found is this: what looks like a kind of seesaw of safety, in that. Areas are renovated and they make it safe for one group of users and and in that process maybe unpick the safety of other people.
2: Absolutely. So when we think about gentrification in cities, often cities will kind of tout this as making the neighborhood safer. But we have to ask, who has the neighborhood been made safer for? Maybe for women who look like me, I'm white, middle class, able bodied, cisgender woman. So a, a gentrified street with lots of nice cafes and boutiques. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to feel safe there. But who has been made to feel unsafe? Are there more police patrols going to the neighborhood? Who do the police stop and card? Have sex workers been moved out of the area are homeless people able to you know make a living in that space so we do have to ask some critical questions about um, what kind of safety are we imagining and and who is it for and whose safety are we kind of throwing under the bus for a certain kind of aesthetic for example
0: and that kind of safety like another way of uh, of achieving it is through this sort of privatization of of space and intense surveillance and policing
2: Yes, and I think so many cities, we've seen that increase over the last number of decades. As um, Norella was pointing out, there's so much of our city spaces that kind of appear public, but are actually privately owned, controlled by private security forces, uh, surveilled by CCTV. They're not public in any meaningful way. And I have to wonder, you know, in this time of a pandemic where we're all being asked to kind of make certain sacrifices and to look out for each other and care for one another. Have our cities really encouraged that over the last few decades? Or have they encouraged us to be kind of afraid of our neighbours, to see people as threats rather than as community members that we want to participate in collectively caring for, even through something as simple as wearing a mask, which has become so controversial to many?
0: the city has always presented this sort of double figure in that it is fraught with dangers and that's almost its attraction not that not that people are necessarily looking for danger but that that is uh, involves spontaneity and randomness we like the spontaneity of cities and the, and the pandemic has has removed that to a certain extent can, how can we add back spontaneity and perhaps its accompanying danger norella
3: um well yeah it's it's what i live for um i don't know by getting out there like it's just i i mean i got a a a bike at the beginning of the pandemic and and going for a cycle feels quite spontaneous at the moment um and discovering and re uh, exploring the city
0: once all these cycle ways have been built for you though does that then lack spontaneity? Is it, is it like yeah. the, the m- moving counter to the, the main flow that's of interest?
3: Absolutely. There's a thrill that comes with cycling through traffic, isn't there?
0: Well, I mean, I definitely feel like that if I'm not on the ground having been knocked off my bike. Yeah. But once I am, my attitude could change. Absolutely,
3: yeah. I mean, I, I never had a bike before the pandemic. I would be a driver and um, I'd always be quite afraid to the idea of being a cyclist in the city um, because it, is, it appears so, so dangerous. But then once the traffic was gone, I owned the entire city and it was mine and I could cycle yeah. around it. And so the cars have slowly come back and now I feel an ownership over the streets that I didn't have before. Sven, you you work in
0: sound, as mm. you were saying, and uh, have made projects to sort of sonorize the city, which mm. seems like a, a thankless task in the first place because it's a competition mostly. So I guess the pandemic has changed that somewhat. What do you mean by a competition? Well, you've got uh, people in, the, not the cyclists, of course, ah. who move around uh, lively and
1: silently, but the, the automated traffic, gotcha. the engines. I'm actually, I'm in love with uh, all of these sounds in a sense. Like I, when I work with sound in the city, it's not to, you know, not to just put in something of my own, but to make sure that it, it sits with everything else around it. And that's, that's again why I think it's not just about thinking of sound as a medium that way, but it's just about understanding relationships differently. Um, so in this moment, when everything got quieter, a lot of people have talked about, you know, the things... that they hear that they weren't usually able to hear. You know, I've seen a lot of like kind of divided in the sound, in the kind of urban sound community, there's a real division of uh, opinions about that. Some people see it as a a return to being able to hear nature, to being able to understand the impacts of traffic noise and things like that. But of course, on the other hand, you know, sometimes, and I felt this, like sometimes I just feel this ominous thing in in the silence, Um, you know, like not hearing that pulse of the city. Not hearing the voices like you know passing by in the same way that they usually do over time really registers as something quite sinister, so you know, so it goes both ways, doesn't it? There's also um, a sort of poetic notion to to
0: the the quietness of the pandemic, which is that we begin to hear other voices. In yeah. you know, the rise of Black Lives Matter has happened at the same time, and we talk about a lowering of the of the sound floor. But that actually maybe provides opportunities
1: for voices mm. in and out of the city. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, the, you know, veering back to maybe something that overlaps with all of our work and practices in this, in this group here, you know, like we're all looking for different ways of, um, of changing the city, of adapting the city, of seeing different perspectives. And certainly in a moment like this, when everybody's expectations have been shifted, different possibilities emerge. Right. And you have, you have that kind of like frantic um, combination of optimism and fear at the same time, which is, which is difficult, psychologically very difficult, but it's probably a good prompt for people to realize how quickly things can change, you know. So whether it's utopian or not to think that artists or architects or urban designers can can change the public realm, I mean, the, the truth is there's room right now for people to get out there and try things, right? Yeah.
0: Lara, this the the plan for Dublin Port is something that you're you know you're looking into a forty year window, but you can't help but imagine the things that have happened this year must have radically altered what seems desirable for a new city quarter?
4: Yeah, one of the projects we're opening next March is a a heritage zone built in the the industrial area where ships used to be made and um, serviced in in, in the port. It is opening up uh, all uh, these questions for us um, and we can no guarantee, you know, just on one concept or one idea moving forward. And I think probably the best example of that from my own previous background, working in museums and galleries, is that we over relied on tourism in Dublin, I think, to kind of fill our city. You know, we think Guinness is the main tourist site uh, for most tourists. 98% of people who go to Guinness to, to them are, are, are international tourists, at 98%, 2% Irish. So when we're talking now about people coming into the port and seeing the port, we are very much you know basing it on... Uh, the citizens of Dublin, the people, the communities around us. International tourism is is going to take a hit. I don't think we can rely on that. We need to kind of go back to what we've been talking about. It's kind of going back to the citizens of Dublin. And I think that's what I found scary with the first lockdown was once, you know, five million tourists stopped coming to Dublin, which is the average every year, you notice the Temple Bar area, Collins Street, uh, Grafton Street, Henry Street, um, they became very, very quiet. Um, And you realise that we are actually quite a small city. And when you don't have this new... Huge population, and once you do take out the tourist, it does give us a chance to see our city in a different way and experience. And maybe
1: it's a chance to design things for smaller audiences as well, isn't it? Because yeah. you know we've gotten into this kind of mentality with everything. You know, we, yeah. we measure things; we measure success by numbers of people who engage with um, with projects. And this is a great chance to look at things that are more focused, like you said, kind of more locally grounded. You know that's a big opportunity, and not and not to rely on kind of existing funding models and evaluation structures as well. I mean that's the danger of this whole move online and this kind of like urgent need to broadcast everything and connect with a hundred participants all the time. Um, you know it's nice to look, it's nice to you know stick with some of these small interactions, isn't it?
3: Hmm. Um, yeah, and not just not just in the creation of works, but rather the built environment itself, like I think when you walk around the city now, you're kind of in search of places to linger and places to shelter and places, like you said, that are comfortable, places where you can gather with a couple of people. They're pretty rare. A place to sit in the city centre is actually extremely rare. And that's pretty strange.
2: This is one of the perhaps hopeful moments of COVID is a kind of a reminder of the ways in which Cities have increasingly been not very like people friendly, not very body friendly. One of the things I try to talk about in feminist city is what if we start from the body and that we all have the need to sit, to use a bathroom, for shelter, for shade, for water. And in the context of the pandemic where we're being encouraged to be outside more, we're realizing that many of our public spaces don't even have these. Basic functions. Like you can't even sit down and have a conversation in a public space, and that becomes a problem. So maybe this is a moment where we can reclaim some of those spaces and make them more human focused, make them more community focused rather than being all about tourism mm. and spectacle.
1: But isn't it funny, like in this moment, you know, there could be such amazing strategies, you know, based on ideas like that, and people could go out and really transform the public realm, but we're all paused because we don't know how long it's going to last, and we're kind of, we have this dopey resilience to things changing, don't we? We're kind of like, oh, you know, like it would be.
3: Yeah, but we are in search. Like, I I mean, we are out there and in search of these places. And I think over the last few months, we've we've probably found them um, Mm. ourselves. What works and where is a nice place to be that's outside, that's free. Like, I, I really enjoy not paying for anything now because my my relationship (laughs) with public space is free. It doesn't cost me money to be there.
0: Which is something that Leslie writes about in her book, is is the way that that the the architecture, the streetscape, the street furniture, actually reinforce a kind of economic ideology.
2: I mean, Norella is absolutely right. Most places in the city that we have come to think of as public spaces are actually private, like cafes, and there's a cost of entry to go in. And not only is there a cost, but those spaces can be very exclusive. We know people of color, people who don't appear to fit uh, the kind of class status and so on are routinely asked to leave. Yeah, I- is there a way that we can find these these free, more equitable, more inclusive public spaces right now? I mean, I think ultimately, people have to be the greatest placemakers and, and uh, users of space. And we see over and over again, the capacity of people to completely ignore whatever the heck planners and architects have designed for a space and to say no actually this looks like a great skateboarding park or whatever it might be or I'm going to eat here and not over here so people are always subverting what the those in charge think a space should be used for and this is again maybe a moment where we can start to notice that like how do people actually want to use space
1: I would put in a line here for um defending. There's a, a square, a park in um in Dublin called Mountjoy Square and my studio looks out on it. It's my favorite public space to to like look out on the city for all these reasons because there's so much like improvised use, different use, different people coming together that you just don't see. Honestly, I've never seen a place like it in the city. And unfortunately right now there are a lot of plans to to redevelop it as a more traditional kind of park space, you know, akin to um Stevens Green and all of this kind of stuff, which I just think is you know, we have an example of, of a wonderful space for like improvised use and um, different communities intersecting people seeing other people who they're not comfortable with at first and hearing their music and hearing their voices and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and yet there's nobody looking at that and studying it and trying to retain it. There's only an impulse to there's a kind of a, a healing of the city to another ideal that for me at least doesn't really match its potential right now. So, you know, if you think about um, the kinds of ideas that are going to come out of this, I think that there's just a lot of opportunities to build on that and not to look at just like the big forms that we usually think of, but to work on more kind of participatory forms to, to reactivate connections between people and to veer away from all this online stuff. We have to do it. You know, we have to get we have to start working back out in the public realm.
0: When some people see the uh, the city as lost in some ways and and they 'd like to escape out of the city and uh, feel that out there somewhere there 's nature and that will offer an alternative to to the city, how much has this the pandemic effect? changed people's idea about what nature and the city are and and their relationship to each other because it seems like it might be good that we have this uh, anthropause happening but at the same time maybe it gives nature a particular kind of complexion that's that's actually not so useful it's somewhere we escape to rather than the place we live
4: i think that people are rushing to the parks at the weekends i mean parks you can't get into parks at the moment um, if you go down onto the Salaman strand and walk around that area, I was down on the beach last uh, weekend, and there's a thousand people on the beach just walking up and down at low tide, which you've, I've never seen, and I especially haven't never seen in November that many people on the beach. As you say, you're seeing it in every single park in, in Mountjoy Square, but all the other parks, despite the the emphasis on 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 cycling, the the kind of downside is that. The, the, the surrounding areas of these parks um, are full of cars um, or people are queuing to get into car parks to go into a park. There was an irony there, but um it definitely has become with this focus of, at the weekends, I think people want to see a bit of blue sky, a bit of greenery.
0: Is one of the effects that we've just denormalised everything, that we suddenly have a way of seeing everything that we took for granted in a way that kind of progressive politics imagines would be useful for everybody, that we suddenly see what it is specifically that is being offered to us Mm. and therefore what's not being offered to other people.
3: Nora What has been quite a surprise for me over the last while is this thing of um, like how hard the city can be materially Like it can be quite hard and it can be quite grey in colour. And this thing of um, green public spaces, that they're kind of a respite from the greyness and the hardness. But also I found that there is a kind of deep human desire to be near nature. And I would say that parks are not nature um i think spending time in the likes in dublin in the likes of phoenix park it kind of reminds you that actually we're on a planet and there's a sky and in one snapshot of an image standing in an open field you can see both the sun and the moon and that can't happen in the city and you're kind of totally distracted by that
2: mm. It is interesting, and I, I do wonder whether this will be a, a long-time trend, you know, people looking for more space, more access to green areas, being less uh, densely crowded urban spaces, and whether this is will be like a reverse gentrification, I don't know. But uh, again, you know, questions of like, who gets to do that, and who is kind of left uh, kind of struggling in the urban core with um, a kind of lack of services being available or who are the essential workers who kind of don't have a choice to go and work from home and to, you know, move to a new province or move out to the countryside, the people who do have to get on the bus every day and go to the hospital and to their food job and their cleaning job that keeps the rest of us alive and and fed. And healthy, so I think the pandemic is kind of making some of those divisions in society and in the city more visible to people as well, and and maybe as a moment to to say, oh, we actually need to really value that labor and the people who do it, and create really um, livable, affordable spaces for them.
0: An extended consciousness of the other users is always a good way to approach a city. And also all we have time for on the CultureFile debate this week. I want to thank my panel, Leslie Kern, Sven Anderson, Norella Breen and La Joyce. And the CultureFile Weekly pops up again next Saturday, tea time. Till then, bye now and off out into the city streets with you.
2: Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thanks. We ended up with
0: three people from Dublin, which is which is quite funny. I I don't know.
3: I didn't think I liked Dublin until now. (laughs) 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 It's weird. Yeah. I I like I didn't realise that. I actually like the place. It's strange.